Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Creator's Journey podcast, episode 10. Every week I bring you a person working in the creative field to offer you their insights, experiences, and a little taste of who they are and how they got to where they are. If you like these conversations, please let us know by leaving a comment and give us a nice rating too. This week we have Helen Oldfield, director and founder of Affinity PR, an expert in PR and communications, and one of her clients is the Pasiti company, the organisers of the Spill Festival. Helen is one of the loveliest and genuinely the friendliest person I've had the pleasure of coming across. She's always engaging people with curious questions and she's utterly delightful. And just to emphasise how lovely she is, we had to record this podcast twice because we had trouble with the recording the first time round. And Helen, without any hesitation and complete empathy, was like, yeah, let's do it again. So thank you, Helen. So without further ado, let's go. Eighteen, my mum bought me. Um, no, when I was twenty-one, I think it was actually. My mum bought me the set of my Angelou um, poems and also her novels. You know, I know where the cage bird sings and that series. So I'm very grateful to have been introduced to that quite early on in my adult life. Did you know she was a uh, infamous for having imposter syndrome? No, I didn't. No, I yeah. didn't know that because I've only ever seen her boldly empowering other women <laughs> um, with her magnificent speeches. Gosh. Oh, uh, she was famously quoted as saying, um, one day everyone's going to find me out. <laughs> oh, gosh. There's no hope yeah. for us then, is there, if someone as amazing <laughs> but, as her could have such a feeling? Well, it's, it's not an uncommon feeling. It's not... No matter how great your work is or what you do, you always have that feeling of inadequacy or you're not good enough for what everyone's praising you for. Mm. And I think that's a universal feeling, I think. But it is a a feeling that's more prominent in minorities and women. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a, there have been those studies, haven't there? Psychological studies where they've um, yeah. interviewed job candidates, and uh, you know, the, if there are ten yeah, criteria, exactly. if the bloke has three, <laughs> they will three <laughs> on the list of ten. Then they'll give it a shot. If the woman can, you know, has seven but can't do the remaining three, she'll talk herself out of applying. Yeah, yeah. I I have that quite a lot. I suffer from imposter syndrome it's a healthy thing also i think do you suffer from imposter syndrome from time to time hell yeah yeah of course and the more i sit and contemplate it the (laughs) the more it grows so um i'm firmly i'm firmly of the belief really that um you know you know everyone's got this kind of well most people have got this kind of inner life well my inner voice 
just tells me to blink and get on with it. So I kind of override it. And I acknowledge <laughs> that I have doubts. And then I say, mm. for goodness sake, just do it. Just have a go. Why would you not have a go? So it's a kind of kindly older sister figure. Yeah. I'm sounding like a nutter now, aren't I? No. <laughs> but, but no, I'm consciously tell myself, um, speak kindly to myself, but in a kind of just do it. Why would you not give it a go yeah. kind of way? And that I, usually I gets think we all it. need that inner voice. Yeah. That inner voice to just say, just do it. Like that encouraging voice instead of having that inner voice that doubts you all the time. Yeah. And I think in a sort of team, in a team situation, like in a in a typical workplace where I'm joining someone else's team, you know, if I'm their outsourced PR, um, I tend to naturally, you know, if, if the working team life is like a jigsaw, I'll naturally be or become that missing link person that just bolts on and says, now, come on, people, we can do this. Why would we not have a go at doing this? Why would we not attempt to try and get this international media starter or the national media to to look at this, um, and that mm. kind of jollies everyone along. I've realised that I've got a jollying everyone along gene that I've acquired from <laughs> a different team, particularly from my brother Mark. He's a great one at jollying people along in a kind of positive. Right, come on, chaps, we can do this kind of way. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think I I override that imposter. Yeah, no, that's great. Like one of the best advice I got from about imposter syndrome was so if you have an inner voice that tells you no all the time oh yeah if someone that wasn't you telling you that if it was someone like outside a stranger telling you that Mm -hmm. you wouldn't take that oh no no i love it actually i love the kind of challenge of um if anybody tells me you're not going to amount to much or you're not going to do this um i do resort to being the rebellious 15 year old schoolgirl i was and think well i'm just quietly putting two fingers up to you and i'm going to show you that i'm not going to quit and i am going to do this and um i'm just going to quietly get on with doing it thank you and being utterly brilliant and then you'll all, <laughs> then you'll all have to eat your words yeah, exactly <laughs> but that's served me very well in my working life because you know this already, Ed, because you know more about my CV than many people. But, you know, in the days when I was working in charities and, and having to campaign and lobby and formulate strategies and um, and kind of mobilize and influence people to do stuff and get stuff achieved, um, yeah, that served me really well, that kind of quality, if you like. So I'm, I'm very grateful mm. for that rebellious teenager streak. It, yeah. I had the same thing where I had the really rebellious teenage streak where people would discourage me from doing what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I would always have that defiant side of me saying, no, I will do it. And I don't care what you say, what you think. I will, I will try my hardest to get to where I want to be. Whether I will get to where I want to be is a different question, but I will at least try. Yeah, good for you. I think I would have been pals with you had we been at high school mm. together. <laughs> I do remember at the, at the high school where I went, there was a little group of similarly delightfully kind of unbelonging 
people mm. <laughs> that just naturally gravitated towards one another, and I'm still in touch yeah. with them now. They're all delightful oh, humans, but we didn't kind of we didn't kind of fit the mold, as it were. You yeah. know, we weren't the popular kids, we weren't the sporty kids, we weren't the ones that everybody fancied, or I certainly wasn't in the smartest set or anything. But, you know, we muddled on nicely. Anyway, we decided that we had enough of this, this culture. So we decided we would take over the sixth form coffee bar, a little office about the size of my broom cupboard mm. where the kettle and everything was. We decided to declare a people's republic and pull down the hatches and, and, and create our own space and rebuild the world as we wanted it to be rebuilt. Oh. So, yeah, we declared a people's republic and you were not allowed in there unless you behaved in certain ways, which are all mm. about equality, really, and being very pleasant to every human and leaving those kind of typically school thoughts of, uh, you know, like the hierarchy, the spoken and yeah. the unspoken hierarchy. Just you had to leave that at the door at the hatch. The social food yeah. chain. Yeah, that's it, social food chain. That's a beautiful expression. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I was probably at the, towards the bottom end of the social food chain. Well, no, not, I wasn't disliked, yeah. but I certainly wasn't like yeah. at the top. A popular kid that got picked first in netball or anything. I don't. I don't recall any of that. Uh, <laughs> talking about, like, I remember my last day of sick form. I got in trouble because I decided to. So last day of sick form, leavers would pull a prank of some sort, and I uh-huh. and I really wanted to like leave my mark. So I decided to do a Jackson Pollock on the art department's windows by getting lots of poster paint and just oh, flicking it everywhere. Outrage. <laughs> and love it. To, to Pollock it. I love how you've made that a verb. A verb. I Pollocked it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what I didn't know was that the head of sixth had already issued a warning to all the usual suspects like the rugby players and all the the popular kids that if anyone pulled a prank of that type of scale, then the leavers assembly would be cancelled. Oh, so I didn't. I I didn't know this, but I did it, and people saw it and loved it. But they also knew that I did it, and <gasps> they they said, um, "Yeah, can you just?" Tell the head teacher that you did it because um, if uh, nobody fesses up to it, then the leavers assembly will be cancelled. I was like, so peer pressure to fess up. Yeah, but they didn't grasp you. No, they didn't. And did you declare? Yes, I did because I thought like I didn't want to ruin everyone's assembly by just keeping quiet. So I walked into the, the head of sick forms office and told him like, uh, yeah, I did the did the prank and he looked at me and then he just burst out laughing <laughs> because he's like, I did not expect that from you. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I like that, that response. Good yeah. head teacher. Yeah. So he, he, he laughs and then he's just like, okay, all I want you need to do is just go to uh, the art teacher, apologize and just clean it up. And it's like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> oh. Sounds a shame. I'd like to have seen it. Did you take a photograph uh, of your fine There is a photograph work? somewhere, but I lost. I don't know where it is. 
that should be in your portfolio somewhere. I, I feel yeah, early work. Early work. Yeah. But, but yes, yeah, so Love it. the reason why I got off so lightly was because I was in that part of the social food chain where I was pretty much the forgotten, invisible kid and the quiet, unassuming kid that nobody really talked to or knew much about. So when I did something like that... it served you well in that instance. Yeah. Good to surprise people, though, isn't it? It's good to surprise people. Anyway, that's a tangent. There we go. We digress yet again. This happens. It happens. But it's always for a good reason. (laughs) So you spoke about working for charities. So shall we have a quick talk about how you got into PR? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a it's a circuitous route. <laughs> was it something that you always wanted to do or was it just something you fell into? A bit of both, really. I mean, certainly at high school when I was doing my A-levels, I didn't even know what PR – I didn't know that PR as a concept, never mind as a profession, existed at all. In fact, when I was at high school, but for the fact that I spectacularly failed my A-levels – because I did not a stroke of work, but in fairness, um, I thought that I was going to go and do so- a social work qualification. Now, isn't that interesting? I would have made a shockingly poor social worker. <laughs> so thanks, universe, for making me fail my A-levels. Um, and so I had to just go in a different direction. So I worked. I just had to get a job. You know, I was in a household where there wasn't a lot of money. I had to just mm. go and get a job, any job. And I worked in local government for a couple of years as um, the lowest level, like grade one finance clerk, I think it was. Lovely, lovely people that are still in Ipswich today, actually. It was at Suffolk County Council. Um, lovely people, a dreadful job for me. Not the right work, not the right environment. Mm. I kept asking why all the time. And, of course, you don't ask that very often in to your superiors yeah. in local government because it's like just because that's the answer always. Anyway, so I went off after – couple of three years, I just heard wind that there was going to be a policy change at government level. And if if I didn't go in 1987 to, to uni, I would probably never go because that was the year that the then government introduced fees, mm. you know, tuition fees and loans. So I was the very last generation to get a local authority maintenance grant. And I'm ever ever grateful that that I was able to to benefit from that. I know I would not have gone to uni. I would not have been the first generation in my entire clan to go to uni had it not been for that opportunity. So it's why I'll bang on forever about, you know, education needs to be free. Mm. And I am very much in favor of state educate state funded education. Mm. Anyway, so I went and I did business and finance because I didn't know quite what else to do. But um, I'd been lucky enough to find a business and finance course that had a a minor subject, which was graphic design for visual communication. And it was a sandwich course. You know, know those don't even know if they have them anymore. So you do two six-month placements. And I chose to do my two six-month placements using the graphic design, the visual communication creative side. And so as a consequence, the first one was at the Tyne Theatre and Opera Mm -hmm. House, working for Northern Stage Company up in 
Newcastle upon Tyne. And um, I loved it, loved it in their sales and marketing team. And again, had a kind of mini eureka moment, which is, oh my goodness, this thing called marketing that we study in our business and finance course, you can do marketing, but in a creative environment. Why did nobody ever tell me that before? Um, And the second placement that I did was the the next year was at the um, Edinburgh International Festival in the press office. And I was assistant to the head of press, Clive Sandground. And um, foolish me again, it was pre-internet, you understand. So it was difficult to do, you know, difficult to just look stuff up and go, what's that mean? You know, you had to plan a journey to go to a reference library, to ask the librarian, to bring you a book, to sit down, to read it, to Mm. learn stuff. That was how stuff was learned in those days. I remember back in the encyclopedia days. Exactly. But, you know, ah. So I learned that the job that I, the placement role that I wanted to do was, um, I thought it wrongly meant assistant as in secretary to. Um, and when I got there, I realized actually, no, it was assisting him in the process of hosting all of the journalists that, that required accreditation and welcoming to the world's largest arts festival. And so I was dealing from there in there, there, you know, from the moment I arrived, really, my whole day-to-day interaction was sorting out tickets and itinerary and press conferences. And But I still didn't realize that that was in the rest of the world, commercial were called PR because <laughs> it was called assistant to press office, uh, head of press, you know. But I loved it so much so that I stayed on for another year. And um, and I thought that I, well, I really wanted to do that forever. But what happens in the world of art festivals and arts festivals is you get a change in the senior leadership team. And that's exactly what happened. We had an outgoing and a new incoming. Is there a reason why that is? I think it's just, um, well, some of it's contractually part of the mm. way that contract fixed term contracts are part of the culture aren't they within the world of arts you very rarely get an incumbent that has a permanent lifetime enduring contract it's not a luxury for all kinds of political and financial reasons but creatively also i think that's inbuilt in the structure of arts and festivals to Mm. have a breath of fresh air and a different perspective so that um you know whatever you're working on or with doesn't become stagnant I think that's the mm. creative force and meaning behind it. But, of course, it does mean out goes one team and they often bring in their own team. That's exactly what happened to me. So to answer answer in a very lengthy way how I got to work in PR and how I got to work in charities, I didn't for years. I didn't think I was working in PR. When I left that role because I just needed to get another job because my contract was ended. I went to London, walked into the first job agency with my little typed up CB. And, um, you know, this was on the Friday. I needed a job from the Monday. The first thing they said is, we've got a job that, you know, for a month, it's around the corner in a charity. Um, Do you want this one? I see you've been someone's assistant. They, of course, also interpreted the role title as secretarial assistant. And so I went to work for a women's health charity in the West End of London, ostensibly for a one-month temp contract, and ended up staying there about three years as secretary to the board of trustees. And from there Mm -hmm. in, I went to another big charity, 
in ed- education roles and in fundraising teams. And, um, you know, fast forward 12, 15 years almost. And then I went back into PR because I was then a, you know, first time mum, couldn't commute all around the UK for the job that I'd held in, you know, Macmillan Cancer Support. Yeah. And somebody was setting up, wanting to set up a PR agency in Suffolk and said, I could do with a you, you know, would do you want to go in with me? Do you want to set this up with me? And um, I did. I just thought, well, yeah, hell, I can't do my, I can't do my commuting anymore. I'll give it a go. What have I got to lose? Yeah. Um, and it was a nightmare. I did, it didn't work out. <laughs> it was an unsuccessful partnership. We weren't compatible in any way in work or mindset and values. So um, after about 18 months, two years, I managed to get away from that and end it and began on my own. But um, I realised within about six Was it tough to start again? Oh, very tough. I mean, it was frightening. It was really frightening, Ed, because I'd never been unemployed in my entire working life. Mm. You know, I think that was probably about 2002, three. Oh, and, I, you know, since 1987, I just worked always, always, mm. always, always. And it was terrifying not knowing where the money was coming from, not knowing if I could do it, this self-employed thing. Yeah. Not really understanding or thinking I didn't understand the world of commerce, you know, mm. like business, even though I had a very good understanding about the world of not-for-profits and charities and voluntary sector and public sector by that stage. Uh, but I just thought, I don't really know anything. <laughs> but, but, you know, you know, you've known me long enough to realise me thinking I know nothing about anything is a running theme. And to, you know, before we were chatting, weren't we, about yeah. imposter syndrome? Yeah, exactly. And that is a running theme. I always think, I don't really know much about this. I better go and do some research. Mm. I better go and look this up. Um, and actually, that has also, that open-minded, ooh, I don't really think I know enough about this. I better go and look this up, better go and ask questions, better find out about this. That's what's actually made me a good PR because every every job that I'm joining, I'm the new girl and I don't always know their industry or their business or how and why they do things that way. And and I have to just ask. Yeah, I think you have the, the great mindset of knowing that you don't know everything because a lot of people <laughs> would just... I so know that. <laughs> but you have the thirst for learning, the thirst for researching. Yeah. You're, you're very professional in that way. You're very, I need to learn everything about this before I go into doing what I want to do for this particular company or organisation. Yeah. And, and also it just gives me confidence to prepare. You know, I am a serial over-preparer. And I had a very good boss once when I worked at a little charity called Cancer Link. And she said to me once, and it stayed with me, she just sort of put her hand on my shoulder and said, Helen, good enough will be good enough. You know, because I was staying late for, you know, weeks on end in the lead up to organizing one workshop at one conference where I'd have to facilitate and present or something. I can't remember. And she'd notice I was staying late and late and late, putting in the time, putting in the time. And she just said, good enough, will be good enough. (laughs) 
you know, or you're, that's it. She said, you're good enough, will be good enough, meaning, mm. you know, I know you've done the work, just stop. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, um, we need to learn. You know, I'm very, again, going back to going to Poly, Newcastle Poly, as it was in those days in 1987. Mm. As soon as I got there, I just had this kind of like mind-blowingly beautiful OMG in a good kind of way. Mm. Isn't this thrilling going into this huge library and there's all these books and there's all these things and I can just go in no one's going to stop me no one's going to <laughs> query my right to be there you know there was that sort of inferiority very modest you know kind of very modest sort of background and I always felt that impost social imposter anxiety of well people like me should are we okay walking into museums and art galleries is someone going to stop me and say what are you doing here mm. you know can I help you in that way? And so I just loved the process of learning. And even better, Ed, the first job that I got to fund my way through college, um, I saw that there was a building, new building going up in the city centre, and it was a huge bookshop, three-storey bookshop, Dylan's. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go and talk to the guy's building and so I spoke to, you know, literally the labourers on the construction site. Mm. I said, what is, what's this going to be? And they gave me the address of their foreman, who then gave me the address of their customer. And I wrote to them while the building was still going up to say, could I have a job? Um, and it was all snail mail. You know, you're pushing it out yeah, to the yeah. earth and not knowing if anyone's ever receiving it. But they liked that. They liked that about me, and that's what got me the job. So I had the luxury of for three, well, two years, funding my way through college by working in bookshops, and it was so beautiful. They actively encouraged you to to read all the time. It sounds like you're a very proactive person. I am, but I'm also beautifully lazy. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing in my leisure life. I get exhausted when I hear what other people are up to because they're out and doing this and got this hobby and I don't really do hobbies no I don't I don't know they've never really kind of um I I'm not no I don't really do hobbies I know you watch a lot of movies and tv so so that's that's I I class those as hobbies because there's an it's feeling your interest in something I refuse to be sniffy about people's tastes in music, culture, art, I I don't think it matters a jot whether people are, you know, watching and re-watching soap Mm. opera or, oh, that said, I don't understand my daughter's obsession with casualty, but sorry, (laughs) casualty, no disrespect, I don't don't really get it. But, you know, I have no objection to people spending their leisure hours sitting on a sofa watching a bit of good telly. Mm. I think that's perfectly acceptable as a leisure activity Um, and I don't know if that's made me a good and wise and understanding parent or a shocking poor parent for lowering my daughter's cultural ambitions I don't know I yeah well speaking from a generation where I was practically put in front of a tv while my parents worked every day I I grew up on tv and movie culture I lived like a few doors down from a video rental store in Manningtree and 
Oh, great, yeah. Every day they would just give me a pound to just go rent a, any movie <gasps> I wanted. That was so exciting, don't you think? I really lament the loss of video rental stores. Yeah. We had one round the corner from here, in us in Ipswich on the Felixstowe Road, for years until quite recently. Mm. And, and it was such a thrill to go around there on a Saturday afternoon and pick a vid. Yeah, especially when you're a kid and you just see, like, because... Yeah, when you're a kid, you just look at the bottom row because that's where all the kids' films are. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. Was, that was the most fun thing. It was just like you just you probably spend the amount of time watching a film, looking for a film. Yeah, it's too easy now, isn't it? On uh, all the online channels, it's too easy. It's too. It's actually a little too much choice sometimes. Yeah. I can spend a good two hours browsing before I find something. You know. <laughs> yes. That it takes fifteen minutes to watch if it's a short film. I love a short film mm. as well. Exactly. But no, there's so much good. There's so much good stuff. Basically, I'm a sucker for anything with subtitles. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, because I at college, I was introduced to the. Um, it's still there, and I go there whenever I'm back in Tyneside. The wonderful Tyneside Cinema, um, which was the art art house movie cinema in well, mm. the whole of the northeast, really. Um, so you could go there and watch two back to back movies for about three pounds fifty on oh. a midweek, and and the the metro, you know, their underground would be rumbling beneath you, so the whole place would kind of shake. <laughs> <laughs> but some of my early early you know most significant film viewing moments i'm just transported back to you know it feels like it's very evocative of sitting in that ancient cinema and just feeling the whole row of chairs vibrate mm. the, the rats dancing in the aisles <laughs> almost although it's very grand now they've refurbished it it's it sounds like you had a really really quirky ambience to the cinema yeah and to this day i don't like going in multi-screens i'm i'm i don't no. like them no i don't like the, you know everything about the ambience is wrong for me i get why other people enjoy it um mm. but i don't like aircon okay i don't <laughs> i find the sound in the multi-screens like whoa overpoweringly loud yeah i i don't know i just i don't have an objection to people eating and stuff like that you know that's not mm. my objection to them but there's just something charming about going to an old-fashioned you know an old-fashioned cinema it's the history it's the storytelling it's the smells you can almost smell the tobacco still the yeah you know i mm. love all that and of course you could smoke you could smoke in a cinema when i was a student so that's part part of the appeal <laughs> watching it through the blue smoke <laughs> do you have a, a favorite like film with a subtitle well i remember at the time it was um the ones that i remember to this day were made a huge impact on me were things like jean de florette mm. you know based on the marcel pagnol um books oh gerard depardieu a very young yeah. Gerard was in them, and it was just—they were just mind-blowingly beautiful in the cinematography, mm. and the soundtrack was so gorgeous. So they stayed with me because this—you know—this little Yorkshire girl, but brought up in Suffolk. Um, I've never seen anything like the beauty of the 
the you know the mountains, the Alps, and the um, Provencal hillside. It was so exotic to me. Yeah, there is there's something magical about like European cinema. Mm. Like, you don't really get that. Yeah, but I I introduced um my girl early on in her young life to um. All the Studio Ghibli mm. movies. I have a horror of um, all things saccharine sweet and, you know, the usual genre offered to young people <laughs> under the age of 12. I, I don't. I thought, I'm not raising my kid like this. So we introduced her to Studio Ghibli at an early age. And so out of that has evolved a real love of all, you know, particularly Japanese theatre. And occasionally I love it when the two genre will collide beautifully. Like my, one of my my favourite films, again, and it infuriates me if anyone says, but nothing happens in it. Because so much happens in so many layers. I love um, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson in uh, Lost in Translation. Yes. I love that for the way it gently collides Eastern and Western mm. culture and uh, thinking. And yeah, that's a beautiful film. Uh, originally, I hated that film, but that was because I was too young to understand it. I never, I didn't have that experience of longing for someone that you shouldn't do, but also being in the in a place where you felt alone, even though you were surrounded by people. Yeah, and I, I also loved the fact that there was that platonic love between those two characters. It never, it did the thing that Hollywood never does. It allowed them to be close and intimate in their friendship, mm. but it was it never teetered over into aging male actor ends up seducing, yeah. you know, young female actor or vice yeah. versa. It never went there, thank God. And I just mm. love it for. Uh, just it's funny as hell, isn't it? Some of those <laughs> yes. scenes in nightclubs are just—they—they they really made me remember my own student life and my early London, mm. you know, under thirty nightclub yes. life. It just made me laugh out loud <laughs> so often. They're like, "Yeah, I've been there." <laughs> uh, uh, and that's the beautiful thing, isn't it, about a a perfect yeah. film? It transports you in all kinds of. Ways sometimes it's back into happier times or memorably good times, and yeah. other times it's into totally new universes and new thinking, new places that your imagination hadn't even conjured up yet. Just serves you new stuff. Yeah, and evoking emotion with in a layered way, where mm. it, like there's yeah. a lot of family films where there's jokes that hit different age groups mm. there's jokes for young children there's jokes that go over their heads and hit the adults that are watching with them yeah that's good isn't it and films like lost in translation does it emotionally where like i said i was too young to get the film the first time but like 10 years later after watching it the second time i got everything that was laid out yeah and it wasn't just the funny moments, but it was the moments where there was a lot of hidden meaning in the silence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so beautifully quiet, isn't it? Yes. I'm having a, an appreciation for things that are things and people who are beautifully quiet. <laughs> and, sl and slowing it down when it needs to slow down. And mm. 
yeah. give you that sense of longing for something to happen, but that, um, it doesn't happen. And now it's one of my favourite films. Good. Good. My, it will remain on my top ten forever, I'm sure. It's up there It's up there with Withnail and I in my top ten revisits. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast, isn't it? Films you have watched more than 40 times and uh, for which you can recite the entire script, word perfect. <laughs> Are you much of a performer? Oh, gosh, not at all. No. I mean, I, I am a member of Suffolk Soul Singers, but that's as far as the performance. And, and I'm because I have a very deep voice, as you can probably tell, I am an honorary bloke <laughs> for the purposes of singing in choirs. So I'm, I'm up on the back row singing with all the blokes normally who are tenors and basses. And that suits me just fine. Um, I don't feel the wish or the need to step out and stand under the spotlight at all. I'm very happy being the person on the back with the clipboard and the mic, uh, the the headphone directing other people mm. towards it. <laughs> I did used to have to perform a lot when I was a kid because our parents raised us that, you know, they're back, my parents' background both from very, very, very modest working class um, steel workers and and miners, coal miners on both sides of the family, those two trades. And and what comes with that culture is brass bands mm. and music. And so my brothers learned brass instruments. And because the, at the time, it being the 1970s, when girls were not allowed to join in their brass, brass mm. bands, it was only boys. So I learned other instruments. And, but, as a consequence, I did. I was in the orchestra pit of an awful lot of local shows and concerts. So I was performing, but it was always collectively, and I was always very uncomfortable with it. Hated, mm. hated it. I didn't really want to be on view. You know, I was quite happy being behind the scenes. And that that's kind of seeped into being working in PR, hasn't it? You very much work behind the scenes doing all the the public relations stuff but without being in front of it you guide the people to be in front of it exactly and i've always felt that if a pr is too much themselves you know i'm not the story i'm it's not about me this i'm only comfortable doing this because it's you ed and i know you and it's radio so i don't have to stand there on stage and speak it you know with everyone looking at me um but i've I've always felt that pr is about enabling other people to do their stuff to tell their stories to publicize what they're about and to have some kind of management of the process so that you retain the control and the agency the the ownership of your own story that feels very important Mm. to me and and so that's what's enabled me yeah i think to represent people well because I don't kind of take over and they're with them hearing what's important to them and helping them to convey their own story in the best ways and very often it's me coaching them in how they can do the kind of thing that we're doing now how they can tell their Mm. own story using all of their own channels and and the media channels very often people think, oh, I can't do that. And they can. They can. In fact, they're the best person to tell their own story. They don't need it typed up in a, a little press release. You know, they, they can just speak it. And that's more powerful. Do you have any general advice for that? Or is it just 
you just jollying them on? No, I mean, again, depending on the person's um, skill set, experience, even sensible things like how they sound, you know, if they struggle to formulate the words while they're speaking, you know, unscripted, as it were, all of those factors will will give me indicators as to how I need to help them, how I need to coach them, whether they can do it or actually whether it needs to be conveyed in a different means, perhaps through a, a written word rather than a spoken word. Um, because no one client or project or person is the same. Everyone needs slightly different uh, mm. approach and tools and degrees and tiers of help and support from their PR. Mm. And that's why, really, I don't do those. I don't do those kind of packages of support. You know, yeah. like tick boxy packages of PR support that tend to be still the norm when companies, you know, commercial companies in particular, are looking to hire a PR or a PR agency, very often they'll phone me or email me and go, send me your packages. And I'll have to pick up the phone and say, what is it you're trying to achieve? Just talk with me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, actually, you don't need a packet. You need this. You know, in my opinion, you need that and that and a bit of that. Yeah. Um, should, do you want me to put together a proposal and cost around that? And so it's all very bespoke, mm. the way that I work. Mm. And I think that's still considered quite unusual within the PR industry, certainly in east of England and I don't you know, probably generally throughout the UK. So what's one of the fantastic things I really like about Affinity PR, which is it is bespoke and you do things in a way where it's not the normal thing. And I think maybe that stems from like you being an outsider most of your life. Being able to be defiant and be that rebel to just do what you think is right for for your clients. Yeah, and and I think where I see you know the way that I just felt as I was a youngster and how I operate now as a, P, a professional PR, there is that kind of um, honesty about just being yourself mm. um, and an unwillingness to kind of dress up something as perfect that is imperfect. Yeah. You know, so I operate slightly differently in, in that regard in, in my industry. And well, because I, I honestly felt I didn't know what PR was when I realized much later mm-hmm. that I'd always been doing PR. I just didn't know that that was the terminology for what I'd always done in every role, you know, mm-hmm. a public facing media facing role. Um, so I've always, found it easier to just say, hang on a minute, just just have a conversation with me. Have let's have the starting point as a conversation mm. and help me to understand how you work. Okay. In that case, now let me help you understand how I believe you can convey that story to the best best of your abilities to reach the people you actually need to be reaching rather than attempting to hit everyone with one message. Mm. So I do quite a lot of very, very targeted PR support. Yes. I will not be contacting 400 journalists with um, the same press release. Mm. I won't be doing that. I'll be talking with you about why 30 journal- named journalists are probably going to be interested in that thing that you're doing. 
because, and again, that will be, be that conversation is, will be based on me having had old school picking up the phone conversations with those 30 journalists. Yes. That's also something that doesn't tend to happen now. No. Journalists will take my calls because every now and then I'll just pick up the phone. I go, I don't actually want anything. Just how are you doing? What are you interested in now? What are you working on? I like that thing that you did on whatever. And I will have read that thing that they did on whatever, you know, and been interested in it. Otherwise I'm not going to bother saying that. Mm. So it's a proper working relationship that I have with journalists that's, that's rather than hiring a database and pushing out a media release to everyone yeah. and hoping that it might stick. Yeah. I don't, it's, um, it's a strange thing now that we've merged with the world of digital marketing that, often the metrics of how you measure impact and value are of PR are increasingly intertwined with the metrics of how many people have been served content mm. that you've generated as a PR. And actually, in my mind, that is not a successful measurement of impact and value. So... You know, I can serve it to a thousand journalists from a subscription only database, if you like, and say it's reached a thousand people. I can probably tell you from experience that 50 of those journalists, and I'll name the ones that have read it because <laughs> they've told me they've read it, um, will actually do something with it that's meaningful and going to help your business or your project or your cause or event. So, I don't know. I'm kind of both delighted with the metrics of digital marketing and the processes and simultaneously horrified by it. (laughs) (laughs) Old school and new school kind of colliding, sometimes a little uncomfortably (laughs) in my experience. But I I think having that experience of the old school brings up really good points about building those personal relationships and building those working relationships where you can phone them up at any time to either let them know that they've done something really good or just to praise them or if you've got something to tell them about. And you you don't get that when you have like mass emails. You probably just get a generic email saying, thank you for telling me about this and then a response about what they want to do with it if they want to do something with it and that's more of a numbers game rather than like you said a more focused targeted way of doing PR and yeah digital marketing thing where it is pretty much just numbers it's metrics it's seeing if people has viewed the content or liked the content or shared the content but it doesn't really show whether they it had an impact on them as a person exactly exactly whereas when you do talk to them you can have a discussion about it you can have comments about it which doesn't normally happen with social media unless they do take the time to actually write down a comment yeah and and you know when i send emails to journalists and media reps you know i'll have done the work i'll have checked what you know if it's a television broadcaster for example i'll have checked which production house generated that content 
for you know that show mm. segment, let's say, and I'll have spoken with their researcher first mm. to check did they pitch it to this person and what was their response. Um, because I've got something a bit like that, but from a, a slightly different perspective. Would in their experience, would that person at you know BBC whatever be interested in this too? And so when I do phone that person, I'll be saying, you know, I've spoken to so-and-so and they agree this content's perfect for you. Yeah. So it kind of gets the foot in the door, yeah. but it's based on work and pro- real interaction and real research. Yeah. Um, and consequently, you know, because my business, you know, we've got two employees, that's it, me plus one other, um, we're not at any one time serving dozens of clients at any one time we're serving usually typically between six and 12 clients and that keeps everything very manageable and it means we do proper due diligence and a care and attention mm-hmm. we're not doing that plate spinning thing that bigger agencies have to do just again, to use your expression, the numbers game, if you've got a team of 12 to 20 staff and you've got to pay all their overheads and the premises and everything that comes with it, um, you've got to do a bit on every single client every day to earn your retainer yeah. and to do your billing, show them, you know, bill every six, six or seven minutes or whatever unit they're using in the industry these days. Um, and you've got to do a report showing the metrics and it's like I, we can smash straight through all of <laughs> one conversation. Yeah. I can decide if a client is a good match for me or not. And I do say very nice, I hope very respectful and kindly, I don't think I'm the right person to help you, but maybe try that person or that agency. I do that very often mm. in any year. And I, in one conversation at the start about expectations and um, how we need to work together. I just say, look, do you want bar charts and graphs and stats and what what actually helps you to know we're having an impact, the work's being done, there's trust mm. that the work's being done, that you're getting value for your money such that you won't, you know, you won't quibble any expenses, frankly. You'll pay the bill yeah. cheerfully and happily. And um and it's a really simple way that we work. So it's probably considered shockingly simple <laughs> by many big agencies. They'll be like, there's no accountability there. You don't do a written report. Well, I do sometimes if that client wants one. But if they say, Helen, what I actually want, are these goals and outcomes achieved? And check in with me if you've got any queries. Mm. Then I'm going to keep it that simple. So I love, I love that simplicity. Why read a 14-page document rather than just having a 14-minute conversation? Exactly. But it, it does show an overriding culture, doesn't it, though? In, in the world of commerce and industry, like not mm. the opposite end of the spectrum from not-for-profits, there's a culture of presentism. Mm. If, you, if they can't see you, you're not doing the work. If they can't micromanage you, look over your shoulder and see over your screen, you're not doing the work, mm. probably or there's this suspicion. Um, If there isn't a report, there's no evidence that you're doing the work. If there's no metrics and statistics, there's no data to support the evidence that you're doing the work. Mm. And it's utter tosh a lot (laughs) of it, in my opinion. But please, listeners, 
do tell us your alternative opinions because I, we're always open to hearing about that. And I do like a playful disagreement. I like to hear what other people have to say on that. Well, as a, working as a non-profit myself, like I do know that you have to have a lot of data and information and numbers to use as a leverage to acquire funding. And yes, a lot of it has to do with where is the money going. So if you're putting money into PR, you need to know, you need a report to show the people that are giving you that funding that this is where the money's gone to. And so there is that kind of conflict of working free-flowing and then having that accountability to require more funding from future funders. There is. And and actually, because my work is often inbuilt into my clients' funding applications, of course, I do I do end up having to research and supply a lot of data mm. in actual fact. I, I, in the example that I was giving previously, I think I was talking about, you know, typical month-end client reports, mm. client reporting, management management kind of accountability stuff but no i i I do contribute quite in-depth stats and evidence Mm. in support of clients who themselves have to apply to organizations like arts council yes because we want to show where the client's work is reaching and most importantly where it is not yet reaching the parts of the community geographically and um you know socioeconomic and um other levels we need to be able to show where we are not reaching yet and where that additional funding will help us to do that so no i do i do um and of course in my working life as a you know, former CEO of Citizens Advice, uh, that was the last job that I ever did in the charity sector before returning to PR and press. Um, you know, of course, everything that I was doing was governed by government um, community legal service, it was called then, of different tiers of regulation and financial accountability so yeah, yeah my report was my daily my daily life was all about the reports all about the data <laughs> all about uh, the evidence and all about auditing and independent scrutiny as well so i'm mm. respectful of it it's just now i have the luxury of keeping things much simpler yes. i love that luxury it's a privilege <laughs> <laughs> uh, i wish to be at your stage one day <laughs> Just not worrying about reports, but I fear that as a non-profit, it's going to be ingrained in me. Yeah, it will be. It will be. (laughs) But I think, um, you know, the other way that so many not-for-profits nowadays are themselves outsourcing um, the management reporting and the account and the those accountability and evidence Mm. bits to to professionals, aren't they? For that reason, because then it enables you as the founder to maintain your creative integrity and focus without getting, you know, bogged down in what are essentially operational management roles and structures. You know, they're necessary, of course, but it's very difficult, isn't it? As a creative professional, you know, your job is to retain the creative focus and integrity. And, And 
how can you do that for very long unless you've got someone or a people or a team around you that can just say, just lob that over here. We'll do that so that you can keep focusing forwards on the what we are creating part. Mm, I agree. Which is why so many arts charities now have small teams. You know, I don't see that as bad use of public funding at all. I think it's necessary use of public funding so that the art that is created remains pure and, Mm. you know, not either weighed down or I can't think of the word. You know, it just, it's, yeah, it can just retain its focus. Yeah. To, yeah, not be... See, you can't so think th- of the word either. It's not just me. <laughs> like diluted get, uh, uh, or divested. Yes. Yeah, or... Or distracted. Thank you. Yes, distracted. And this is why I have a small team of online pals who I have to um, defer to who can help me remember words. They can help me think of the words <laughs> while my brain goes. I do have a little online team of pals and go, what's the word for so-and-so? I can't find it in thesaurus. What is it? And they all come back to me and go, this is the word you need. And I get six different answers and they're all good. <laughs> Power of putting a problem out to outsource yes. It's always good to have a team that you can rely on for all the small things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's actually, that's another way that I've realised, I realised early on that it's considered quite unusual a way for a PR to operate. Um, I've never had any issue whatsoever with um, working with and alongside and in the same team as fellow fellow. PR consultants, you know, individuals, but also working with other agencies as their white-labeled, outsourced mm-hmm. PR supplier. But when I first knocked on a few doors um, in the east of England, just as an example, yeah. I got really interesting responses because I'd come from the background of working in charities where collaboration is everything, partnership yeah. is everything. It's always assumed the only way you can get anything done in a not-for-profit is by, you know, can we work together on that? Because you've got that thing and I've got this thing and together we're really powerful. Let's do it together. So I took that concept, of course, in sheer utter blissful ignorance knocked on a few doors and said hey i'm a national media specialist i can i can help your clients that i can see are on your website get into the national media not just the trade and the locals do you want to talk about that and sometimes there was just like door slamming in my face oh really sometimes there was sort of suspicious well you know will you sign an nda agreement you know a confidentiality legally binding document which of course i was happy to other times there was a kind of, no, we don't, we don't do that because you'll just try and nick all of our clients. And I have to say, the idea hadn't even occurred to me before they planted it in my <laughs> mind. Because again, I come from that ethical charity mm. voluntary sector environment where you wouldn't dream of nicking yeah. a funder and knowing that it was going to cause hardship and underfunding or job losses or beneficiaries wouldn't get what they needed because you'd stolen a funder you, yeah. you know so it's all, a whole different mindset i was approaching this world of commercial work um and it just used to amuse me but then a couple of doors quietly opened and they said look 
we we really do need your help, but we're not happy for you to say to your customers or your audiences that you are doing this for us. So we're going to take all the credit for all the work that you do. And again, this isn't this hilarious. It didn't even occur to me that there was anything slightly iffy in that because I just thought, I don't care who gets the credit. As long as I'm doing good work and getting paid, I don't care. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of that that happens where there are agencies all around the UK claiming to have achieved this and done that and secured this mm. media coverage and that opportunity for their client. And it was me. <laughs> and I can't tell I can't tell anyone because no. I don't know, I guess they'd have to kill me. <laughs> but that's kind of amusing. That's kind of amusing. But are you happy to do that without taking any credit or totally. Honestly, totally. As long as the work's good, the client's happy and I'm getting paid properly. Totally mm. happy about that. It's not about me. That's the whole point. Going mm. back to what we said, it's not about me. It's about yeah. the clients what we can do for them and do you find there's a, a lot more room for future collaborations when you do that yeah absolutely and now i'm i'm starting to see more other consultants doing something rather similar and i think that's great mm. that's a really good way for other mm. individual consultants to scale up and yeah. be able to take on huge projects and big brands and clients also instead of thinking that because they were one person working on their own, they could only take on like sole trades, micro businesses, local businesses. Well, no, I've, I've, it's never, it never occurred to me, again, in fairness, out of sheer ignorance at the start, well, why wouldn't I ask? Why, you know, mm. the most that can happen is they're going to say, well, we're sorted, thank you. We don't, you know, thanks very much, but no thanks. Um, and I've never taken that kind of, yeah. if you like, rebuff personally. I've always thought, okay, fine. Do you want to talk again in six months? Yeah. It's the same as you turning down uh, potential clients. It's not the right yeah. fit. And it's not personal. It's just the fit. No, exactly. But it does seem to be in a world where, in a, in a, or in an industry where the norm is for, six agencies or consultants to be almost sat outside the head teacher's office, that analogy, awaiting their turn to be called in to pitch their proposal ideas to a potential client. And therefore, everyone's kind of like hiding, you know, like hiding their answers. That's the mm. prevailing culture still in the industry. Um, it does seem that the way that I'm always have always operated and more individual consultants are starting to operate by banding together collaboratively mm. and then scaling up that there's going to be ever more scope for more PR consultants to do really very interesting big projects together and that has to be a good thing doesn't it that has to be good yeah, for the industry and for the clients and for those um, professionals I know one of your biggest pet peeves is uh, a fellow professional phoning you up and saying, can I pick your brain? Oh, yeah, I hate that phrase. I really, yeah, I really dislike that phrase. I, I will help any any soul in general. Honestly, I will. But when, it, when such a request comes from an organisation, a business, a professional that I know 
will pay their accountant for the accountant's advice, will pay a lawyer for legal advice, but they expect to kind of tap me up for professional opinion, advice, strategy, options, ideas, and just me hand it over to them totally free of charge. I, mm. I now very much object to it. And it happened an awful lot during lockdown, COVID-19 lockdown. And where I could see it was um, where, pe- where people were operating with limited resources through no fault of their own, just because it was lockdown, mm. I would try and help them on a one-to-one basis doing Zoom calls and whatever. Um, when it was a not-for-profit, a charity needing to rethink its messaging and get back off its knees and get out there and get fund, I'd, I'd help. But no, when it's companies that, and organisations that are just profitable, you know, like really nicely profitable. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to give my advice away. And and that's one of the reasons why I've been, uh, during lockdown I, I thought through. Well, what can I do differently? What can I learn from this? that my own business can offer as a separate entity and service afterwards. So now I am actively offering one-to-one consultancy on Zoom, whereby you don't have to have a retainer contract. You don't have to hire me for an entire project or for the Mm. entire lifetime of a project, but you do me the professional respect of you schedule and book and prepay for an hour of my time, Mm. you know, or or two hours of my time, whatever your budget and the project needs. And I'll give you my professional opinion, but I'm not giving it away anymore except for the not-for-profits that I've always supported. Mm. And that felt very empowering when I made that decision. (laughs) That's the thing with a lot of not just PR professionals, but creative professionals who – maybe don't have the confidence to do that yet where they do just give away things for for little to no money yeah because they've been talked into it and having that confidence to say no like you you can spend money on lots of different things but you'll have to spend money on me as well yeah and that's that's something that everyone needs to learn to do it's not something that's because naturally we want to help people. Yeah, of course. But it's also but it's also having the capacity of yourself being able to help without offering too much of yourself. Exactly. And committing yourself too much. I loved it when uh, I'm going to do a little shout out to Miranda Akers, who is a really excellent marketing consultant and, and has become a good friend in business. But to give that woman her credit, she phoned me during lockdown with a specific work-related query, and she began her conversation on the phone with, look, I want you to know that I'm prepared to fund our time in talking, but I would like to ask your professional opinion on something, you know, a, a work-related, a couple of strategy options that she was considering for clients of hers. Mm. And and I just was so respectful of that approach that I'm sure I gave mm. her an awful lot more ideas than she thought she was going to get for her money. <laughs> so um, it works both ways, you know, in in mm. me having the confidence to say, no, now you're paying for it, people. You're paying for an hour of my time and advice and opinion. They're, mm. they're going to see value in that because they get considerably more for their buck than they may have done previously even. 
you know, I'll be mindfully trying to help them out in the time available, make the most of that time. Yes, of course. When we are out of lockdown for good and everything returns back to normal, hopefully, whatever normal is now, what's the first thing you're going to do? Do you mean in work or in leisure or in life generally? Life generally. Life generally. Oh, I'm definitely going to revisit with my pal Elaine Marston the sober rave, Sunday morning rave that we tried out pre-lockdown. It was so good. Um, So we went all the way to central London, to the city, to a kind of a nightclub. But on a Sunday morning, we were there by about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning. So something like 9 a.m. till 2 p.m., all generations, in daylight, but the best, best DJ set. Everyone sequined up in full costume. Um, Oh, it was just a beautiful thing. And I loved it. And I, I want to take my entire family back. So I'll be going there. It's been fantastic to have you on again after the last week's. Yeah, they, people won't know what happened, but we tried this last week, didn't we? And the recording didn't work. So we're doing it again. But aren't we? How nice to have a second, a second yeah. chat with you, Ed. It's such a pleasure. No hardship whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next time. Thanks, Ed. Bye. Bye.